Welcome to William Blair Thinking Presents, a new podcast series that aims to provide in-depth expertise from our award-winning equity research and capital advisory teams on today's financial and economic landscape. I'm Chris Thonis, Head of Equities Marketing and Media Relations, and I'm delighted to be your host. Hi, everybody. On today's episode of William Blair Thinking Presents, we welcome macro analyst Richard DeChazal with over two decades of experience analyzing the U.S. economy and financial markets. Richard routinely provides timely insights and commentary on a broad range of economic trends, including the various high-frequency economic indicators that are released each month. He also, of course, covers the actions of the Federal Reserve and financial markets, and his analysis tends to be broken up between three core reports, including his Economics Special Report, Economics Weekly, and Weekly Market Monitor. So with that, Richard, thank you for joining the show. It's great to have you here. To kick this off, I'm hoping you take us on a walk back to some of the more significant economic indicators and Fed action that have occurred in June. Um, in particular, we'd love to start with the most recent CPI data, which I know didn't necessarily provide the news we want this time around. What would you say were the most important takeaways coming from this month's reading? Sure. Well, first of all, Chris, just like to say thank you very much for inviting me on your podcast. Yeah. On the, I mean, on the inflation front, I think the basic premise for the prism through which I'm looking at the economy right now is really that this is more of a textbook economic cycle that's playing out, sort of economics 101 type thing. We had the pandemic, we had the global financial crisis in 08, 09. And I think right now, what we're seeing is from, I guess, from a very big picture perspective is on the inflation front, we had COVID, we had a lot of stimulus, we had too much money chasing too few goods, we had prices skyrocket, those were kind of edging down a little bit. And then we were hit by the Ukraine invasion. So commodity prices were soaring, grains, metals, oils, and in particular gas. And now those are kind of dissipating, but we're still left with this kind of stickiness from a very tight labor market. Consumers still have pretty good balance sheets. They still have excess savings. So those are sort of diminishing, but not quite fast enough. And I think what we saw in the May CPI report, which was just released a couple of weeks ago, is that kind of story playing out. So encouragingly, we did see a deceleration in headline inflation. So that fell from 4.9% to 4%. So that's pretty tangible, significant fall. Unfortunately, a lot of that weakness came in food and energy prices, which tend to be a bit more volatile. Uh, if you look at the core rate, which excludes both of those, the sequential month-on-month -month gain was still 0.4%. So it's that's kind of been the trend for quite a few months now. And the annual rate of change really just nudged down a bit from 5.5% to 5.3%. So encouraging, but not quite there yet. If we look at what Powell likes to look at is sort of four buckets of inflation, you know, there's food and energy prices, but then there's durable goods prices, shelter prices, and shelter or services less shelter. And all of those, I think, again, telling this sort of similar economics textbook 101 story where higher interest rates are slowly sort of filtering through to the economy. They're having a dampening effect, but they're kind of moving through in this sort of dominoes type pattern. So durable goods prices, kind of the first thing you would expect to get hit from higher interest rates, those are coming down. Those are now negative year over year, and that's significantly helpful. 
if you look at shelter prices, those have been higher. But if you look at what actually drives those rental prices and shelter accounts for about 35% of the CPI basket, we know those sort of lag feet on the ground, real rental price changes in the real world by anywhere from sort of eight to 14 months. And we know those rental prices are coming down and those should start to decelerate and be a negative drag on the CPI in the coming months. It's really that final bucket sort of services less shelter, which again is, as Powell likes to say, more sort of driven by wages and salaries. That's the kind of stickier aspect. And I think you know, a good example for this being the price of haircuts. So if you think, you know, the major cost of a haircut is really the labor that the the barber, the coiffeur puts into their cuts, those are still elevated. So, you know, haircut prices are still year over year about 4.9%. And that services less shelter component is still at 4.2%. So I think I'm optimistic that we're seeing improvements. We've seen supply chains that are clearing. If we look at more forward-looking data, so sentiment from, say, small businesses on their pricing plans, those have come down quite sharply. And the leading economic indicators of general economic growth are also down quite sharply. So those would all be good indications that I think pricing should start to come down more tangibly in the coming months. Yeah, I'd love to really dig into where the Fed currently stands. Obviously, they are seeing the same data you are. You just mapped this out a little bit. And, you know, right now we hit a little bit of a, a neutral point, right? They didn't raise the rates. But in your, I think maybe in your last weekly market monitor, you you had said that there's still potential for one or two more rate increases before a definitive pause. So this this current pause is not necessarily great news. What does that mean for the near future in terms of market participants? And what could change as we move towards the second half of the year? There's probably two ways you can look at it, you know, what the Fed is doing at the moment. So there's probably how I'm looking at it and how the Fed's looking at things. And really, it's obviously only the Fed's view that matters on things, but I'll I'll tell you my view anyways. I think from my view, there's pretty clear evidence that growth is slowing. I think it's very likely that we'll have a recession in the coming 12 months, say, and that inflation is going to moderate. So if I were on the FOMC, which obviously I'm not, I would be looking to pause here and not raise rates, you know, again later this year. And I think one other thing to sort of note on this front too is that even if you pause here, as long as inflation is coming down, you're still tightening policy. Your your real rates are still increasing and that's the rate that actually matters, the rate after inflation. So the Fed actually has to start cutting rates for policy to remain neutral as long as that inflation is coming down. So, you know, if you look out into next year, assume the consensus forecast is right. So in 2024, by the end of the year, the consensus is looking for uh, inflation to fall to two and a half percent. If you don't lower rates, you're actually raising rates by about 150 basis points just by pausing, as it were. So I think that's something to think about. And I guess that also ignores what the Fed is doing on its balance sheet with Q2. I think the Fed right now is is sort of following this kind of opportunistic disinflation period, which basically Greenspan did in the 1990s. So that would be kind of my message. I think that's not 
what the Fed is telling us, right? So what the Fed is telling us is that it's taking a breather. It paused in June, but it fully expects to raise rates again in July and maybe even again in September, right? And I think what the Fed is doing, it's kind of doing this sort of sensible risk management approach. A disaster for it would be, you know, if it stopped raising rates and then inflation takes off again. And that's essentially what happened to Volcker the first time around in 1980, when uh, he felt that the economy was in recession, inflation was coming down, he could bring rates down and he brought them down quite significantly. But then inflation wasn't quelled and he had to crank them up again back to 22%. So the Fed today, I think, is kind of deathly afraid of making that mistake. It's adopted sort of the post Volcker mantle of making sure it doesn't happen or keeping at it to keep that inflation down and policy tight, which for their perspective means being overly cautious, overly hawkish, risking a recession, but definitely getting that inflation down to try and regain some of that credibility that we've lost. So Powell is basically playing that. They're in risk management mode. And they've also been telling us that you know, in contrast, again, to market expectations, that they actually don't plan on cutting rates for another two years. So that was something that was sort of a new, new thing that the markets hadn't really been thinking about. And that's what Powell revealed at the last FOMC meeting. So I think from the market's perspective, it was expecting about 50 basis points in cuts through the rest of this year. Those have now been completely wiped off the table. The market is still expecting about 125 basis points of cuts in 2024, which Powell is kind of pushing back against, but the market really doesn't seem to be buying into that view just yet. All right. Well, beyond the Fed, what would you say are some of the other economic indicators that have caught your attention lately? Actually, I, I would love to know... Are there any big surprises in the positive sense? Anything that makes you hopeful for the near future? Well, I have to admit, I'm, I'm definitely a little bit less optimistic about the near-term kind of cyclical outlook. I guess where I'm most positive about is more sort of the structural or secular story right here. And, and I think that's where we're sort of seeing the kind of the weird thing or weird market behavior. I think that's slightly confusing investors right now. They're trying to balance this sort of little bit more gloomy, near-term, cyclical outlook, more expected volatility, a bit more noise with, I think, what looks like a sort of more positive, structural, secular economic growth story. And I think we can see that in a number of different areas. In housing, for example, we're, we're going through a bit of a, a near-term cyclical weakness in the housing market, but structurally, I think there's a structural undersupply of homes. There's structural demand coming from the millennial demographic, et cetera. So that's perhaps one example. I think another one is on the whole productivity front. And I think this is where perhaps I differ from a bunch of other economists. I think most people are pretty pessimistic right now about the overall productivity outlook. And I think with some justification, because it's been terrible for the last few decades. But I think if you try and assess what actually caused that weak productivity. I think one of the biggest contributors was this kind of supply glut of labor. So 
basically we had an excess of labor from you know the opening up of former Soviet countries, the opening up of the emerging markets, free trade, all this kind of thing where labor was cheap, plentiful, and for companies, it made sense to take on more workers. You could hire and fire them easily and take on less capital. But I think what's changed or what is changing at the moment is labor markets now seem much tighter. We've got adverse demographics. So we've got aging populations. We've got slowing population growth. We have some deglobalization or perhaps decoupling. So I think that puts further upwards pressure on labor costs, particularly relative to capital. And I think companies, if they want to maintain these sort of elevated margins that we've seen for quite some time, is they're going to have to put more emphasis, more weight on that capital investment part of their business. So investing in automation to try and yield some of those productivity gains. So I think on the positive side, there's actually you know, decent case, we could be at the early stages of a bit of a CapEx boom going on. So I think the capital stock companies haven't been investing in this for years. So it's it's about as old as it has been since the 1960s. I think you're in the midst of a major innovation wave. You can call it the fourth industrial revolution or, or whatever, AI, et cetera, et cetera. And then on top of all that, you have all the incentives that the Biden administration is throwing at you through the Inflation Reduction Act, the Investment Infrastructure and Jobs Act, and, and the CHIPS Act. So I think there's a pretty good story there for sort of a longer term structural thing, which kind of makes, hopefully puts a little bit of a floor under maybe the, some of the cyclical weakness that we see coming through. Right, right. So I'm going to shift this conversation a bit here, still economics focused. However, you and I just had a, a great time at William Blair's 43rd annual growth stock conference. So you always do this, this phenomenal recap of the event in your economics weekly report. You call the, the conference a good window into the, the real economy. So with, with most companies typically providing some kind of assessment on the, the macroeconomic landscape. Do you mind digging into some of this year's macro highlights from the event? I know you, I know you broke it down between a few, uh, I think it was aggregate economic growth, consumer health, manufacturing strength, views on the labor market, and then consensus on, you know, among companies on inflation and pricing. So that, that was a couple of weeks ago. I mean, I, I love the growth stock conference. So it's, I think it's still one of the best on the street. It's a broad based conference, which you don't get much of these, these days. So it gives you a real good view across the economy of what companies are saying really from the bottom up. I think embarrassingly, it's the 22nd I've been to. I think, <laughs> you know, if we want to compare and contrast it to last year, I think, you know, last year investors were pretty pessimistic, but the message then from companies was if there's a recession out there, we really just don't see it. I mean, it was pretty firm. This year, it was a little bit different, a little bit, perhaps a little bit more nuanced. I think the message was, we're not currently in a recession, but we're a little bit worried about these huge increase in, in interest rates that have taken place over the last year. And how are those going to start to filter through to the rest of the economy? And I think some companies were still very optimistic, others not so much. 
no one I found, I mean, well, these companies are never particularly negative, but no one was overly pessimistic. So it was a little bit more mixed. So I think probably the most optimistic were the consumer-related companies. So I think a good example was one of the big global credit card companies, which I saw. And, and these guys yeah, have a super deep database. They have great insights into into the health of the consumer. And they were very clear. I mean, they said, we're just seeing a very resilient consumer. And I think that was the sort of message we got across a lot of, whether it was sort of restaurant companies or consumer discretionary companies, not yet seeing a whole lot of weakness. They see strong consumer balance sheets. They see delinquency rates, which have picked up a bit, but this is sort of more of a kind of normalization back to 2019 levels, which was already pretty low historically. So on the consumer side, generally still pretty positive. Where there was a little bit more pessimism or a little bit less optimism, I think, was probably on the manufacturing side. I think companies there are more at the forefront of rate impact. So they're feeling that sort of further along or earlier in, in the chain. They're seeing some inventory destocking and they're starting to see that impact from rates starting to come through as well. I think maybe I just add two sort of final observations that were interesting and perhaps different from past conferences. You know, I was keen to hear what companies were saying about the banking system, had there been any sort of longer-term impacts from the Silicon Valley, signature bank failures, et cetera. And no one was really talking about that. I thought there would be more talk about tighter lending standards and banks you know, not being as ready to loan. Nobody was really mentioning that too much. They sort of see it as a bit of a blip, and we sort of moved on from that. And then I think the second thing which was really interesting was how much all these companies are kind of distancing themselves from China these days. So whereas in the past, you'd listen to these companies and a lot of them were sort of falling over themselves, trying to tell you how big their TAM was going to be from China. And once they you know expand that market today, the view seems to be, let's just not mention China or if we're going to talk about it, let's talk about how we're sort of diversifying away from it. I think companies are starting to be a little bit concerned, obviously, about the geopolitics there, but a little bit more concerned about investors that are maybe starting to think about having to attach a slightly higher risk premium to those companies where they see elevated China exposure. So I think that was sort of a really new, new observation, which has appeared over the last few months. Awesome. Well, Richard, thank you so, so much for joining. If you like what you heard, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'll see you next show. Copyright 2023, William Blair and Company, LLC. William Blair and Ardox are registered trademarks of William Blair and Company, LLC. As used on this podcast, William Blair refers to William Blair and Company, LLC, William Blair Investment Management, LLC, and affiliates. For more information about William Blair, go to www.williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended as investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of an investor's objectives, guidelines, and restrictions.
The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are subject to change over time as market and other factors evolve.